Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. The two mass shootings over the weekend in Dayton, Ohio and El Paso, Texas, left at least 31 people dead, and the tragedy has renewed calls for stricter gun control. The pressure came from likely places, such as former Vice President Joe Biden. I would institute a national buyback program, and I would move in the direction of making sure that that, in fact, was what we tried to do, get them off the street. And Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown. I asked the president to promise to me and to the American people that he will sign that bill after he's spoken out in support of it with Senator McConnell. But this time, the push for a legislative solution has also come from some parts of the Republican Party. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine marked a major shift in the party by calling for expanded background checks and a red flag law as part of a larger plan to reduce gun violence. Some chanted, do something. And they were absolutely right. We must do something. And that is exactly what we are going to do. I'm asking the General Assembly to pass a law that requires background checks for all firearm sales in the state of Ohio. Some other Republicans are raising the alarm that opposition to such legislation could spell disaster for the party with the very voters they need to win in the 2020 election, suburban women college graduates. We spoke with Dan Eberhardt, a Republican donor and oil and gas executive from Oklahoma City, who said it is time for the GOP to change its views on gun control to better reflect where the country stands on the issue. Last year, Dan, who is a supporter of President Trump, was having lunch with Rick Scott when the then Florida governor learned of the massacre unfolding in Parkland. Now, 18 months later, Dan is pushing for action, saying, quote, Republicans are headed for extinction in the suburbs if they don't distance themselves from the NRA and put forth solutions to help eradicate the gun violence epidemic. We started by asking him why this issue in particular creates a vulnerability for the GOP in the suburbs. Why? Well, I think that, look, last in the last cycle, the Republicans lost 40 seats in the House. And I think if the party wants to, to, to get those seats back and to have the majority in the House, and also to get uh, voters in the 2020 election, I think the party needs to be willing to put a little distance between itself and the NRA and show that they're part of the solution uh, rather than just having a deer in the headlights look when it comes to gun violence that's happening around the country. So, Dan, why are folks in the Republican Party mm -hmm. uh, so resistant to this, despite the fact that you have polls that show the uh, majority of Americans want uh, some type of expanded background checks, some type of increased gun control? The majority of gun owners also want the same thing. And even a significant portion of Republican voters appear to also side with this issue. It doesn't seem very controversial from a political standpoint. So why not embrace it? Well, I think that what's going on is the, the NRA has got the Republican Party in a set of vice grips, but the country has moved and the violence is just 
uh, become too much and we've reached a boiling point, I think that what needs to happen is we need to see uh, common sense solutions that respect gun owners' rights and respect law-abiding people's right to own a gun, but we've got to address the gun violence issue and we've got to come up with solutions. And I think the Republicans just continue to look like they're you know, caught in the headlights and staring and don't have any solutions on this problem. And I think that they need to admit that, admit that it's a problem and embrace finding solutions and working with Democrats and working with uh, the general public to find solutions to gun violence. And I think that the Republican Party hasn't done enough to do that. How can they actually distance themselves from the NRA? Well, one, one example is what Governor Rick Scott, uh, now Senator, did after Parkland. So I believe 17 people died in the Parkland shooting. And Governor Scott said, look, we're going to raise the, the age to buy a gun from 18 to 21. We're going to have a three-day waiting period. And the NRA loudly rebuked him, and he received a lot of, of uh, stiff resistance to that. But he, he, as a Republican governor, put that forward in Florida as a part of a solution. Again, it included uh, more money for mental health, and it included more training and security at school. So it was part of a holistic solution, but a little bit of you know additional regulation and a little bit of uh, common sense, you know, perhaps makes makes Florida a safer place. And Rick Scott, as a Republican governor, was able to get that done, and then the same year stand for election to the United States Senate and win. Dan, I think in 2016 there were a fair number of suburban voters who maybe they didn't like Hillary Clinton, they didn't like Trump, mm -hmm. they kind of held their nose and voted for Trump maybe. Do you think beyond just the gun issue, there are other things that the president has done, particularly on the tweeting, other topics that are going to make it a little bit harder for those same voters to pull the lever in his favor uh, this time around? Well, I think the, the roaring economy is going to make it easier for them to pull the lever. But I think there's a lot of people out there that like Trump or like Trump's policies, but maybe don't like the tweets, maybe don't like the tone or maybe don't like the style. But they fundamentally like the policies and they hmm. fundamentally like where the economy's at. So, uh, Dan, I mean, you're obviously very tapped in mm -hmm. uh, with the party here. Uh, if you had the president's ear mm -hmm. uh, today, specifically on the gun issue, what would you tell him to do? I would tell him to, to, to throw the past out, out the window and sit down and look at it like he needs to be a statesman, he needs to be a leader, and he needs to respect gun owners' rights, and he needs to make sure that, uh, you know, creeping regulation, um, you know, needs to be avoided at all costs. But at the same time, this is an epidemic, and we need a solution, and we need leaders, and that's what I think voters are going to reward in 2020 is somebody that leads on the issue. And I think that Trump has got an excellent opportunity to do that right now. This week, Disney was a big drag on the Dow. Shares fell the most since October after reporting disappointing quarterly earnings. There were plenty of points of blame, including theme park attendance, spending on its highly anticipated new streaming services, and a costly movie flop that was inherited from the $71 billion acquisition of Fox assets. We broke down all the results with Scott Galloway, marketing professor at the NYU Stern School of Business, who is also the author of The Four, the hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. You've missed me. I sense you've missed me. Yes, yes. We're Is excited. Is that delusion, to... delusion or common sense? No, no. It's, it's a well, fine yeah, 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 There you go. Thank feel. you for that. Thank it's a good you. day to have you on because yeah. we see how Disney is trying really hard to respond to Netflix's assault yeah. with its own streaming service. Yep. It's got the library. It's got the brand name. Sure. Um, it's got the pricing. Is that enough to help it catch up? Can anyone catch up with the Netflix? So there are only two companies in the world right now that are effectively landing counter punches on big tech. One of them is Walmart landing some counter blows on Amazon. And the other is Disney, that is probably the only content company that could effectively land counter blows on Netflix. 
And I would argue they're doing it. And they're headed in the right direction with a bundle similar to Netflix, Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and then uh, Hulu Plus. But there's no getting around it. Innovation or trying to counterpunch is Latin for we are going to have to take earnings down. Yeah. Because while everybody hopes that they can bring in a professor or a consultant and talk about disruption and spread pixie dust on the table and unlock something to, to, to compete against big tech, at the end of the day, it all comes down to one thing, investing more in the consumer experience and, and spending more and taking your profits down. And that's what Disney's doing. My prediction is by the end of the week, consumers realize that Disney has a chance to strike, you know, the empire is striking back here and the stock's up. <laughs> nice pun. Half a billion, though, is what they yep. lost in just the previous quarter in investing in this new direct-to-consumer streaming yep. product. Does the investor base of Disney as it stands have the stomach for the investment that Netflix investors have? It's a, that's the correct question, because what Netflix and Amazon have been able to do that no other company of that valuation has been able to maintain is they have replaced profits with vision and growth. Mm. And no one's been able, no one's been given the mother of all hall passes like that and been able to get to seven, eight hundred billion dollars in market cap as Amazon has and with Netflix two, three hundred billion without achieving meaningful profitability. And investors get hooked on the crack of profits. And once you take the crack away, they get very, very irritable. Disney has the assets. I mean, they're sort of bundling. What they should keep doing is keep going with the bundle. Because imagine, I think everyone here has kids, or I think most of us have kids. Yeah. Can you imagine a bundle of all of this great content and Pixar and special days at Disney that aren't as crowded and the best cabins on Disney Cruise? Every parent in America would have to pay that grand bargain fee. And we're not talk, talk, talking $12.99 a month. We're talking maybe two, $300 a year. Hmm. No parent is not going to be a member of that. And Disney is one of the few companies that has the assets, the capital, and quite frankly, the leadership. Hmm. Bob Iger is one of the few CEOs in America that can endure a turn down in the stock saying we're investing for the long term. But you're absolutely right. You have to have the capital and the stomach, an investor base with the stomach to lose this kind of money. Yeah, he's got the credibility. We want to switch gears now to Uber and Lyft because uh, Lyft will be reporting earnings after the close today, Uber later on this week. Both are trading about 10% below their yeah. IPO price. The listing's far from runaway successes, but I guess everyone's thinking, yeah. hey, this can be like Facebook where they struggle for the first year before the stock really yeah. takes off. Is there a winner or loser combination here or can both win? Uh, so I think uh, typically when a company goes public, having taken one of my own companies public, typically the first earnings is kind of in the bag. Mm-hmm. So they should mean, have guided enough. In the yeah, they, it, typically the first earnings is kind of kind of cooked. They know what it's going to be. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're they're decent. But look, Uber is no Lyft, and or Lyft is no Uber. Uber has a terrible core business. Ride hailing is a difficult. Uh, business where we have trained consumers to get $15 worth of service that they pay $10 for, right. and that's reflected in the economics. Lyft, but at least with Uber, they have a flywheel effect, and that is Uber Eats looks like it's a good business. Uber Freight could potentially be a good business. The globally affluent, the first and the last brand they see when they're in London or Shanghai, is often the Uber logo, so it has a global brand. Lyft is a bad business without any flywheel effect. So I think you're talking about a tale of two cities. Uber is going to be a a terrible stock, in my view, to own. Lyft is going to be a disastrous stock to own. One is a bad business with opportunities to potentially flywheel into other better businesses. One is just a bad business. You feel that food delivery is a good business in the respect that we've seen so much consolidation. You've yep. got Square getting out of DoorDash. You've got Is that going to be a money-making scheme? 
Well, it looks as if so far it is a better business and that there's opportunity for them to take advantage of these incredible relationships with, what is it, four million drivers, mm -hmm. the software, Uber Eats, the brand. You could see them being the leader in the space. And also, from a consumer standpoint, we are used to paying these additional fees for food coming into our home. Interestingly, we've got some breaking news coming out on Instagram chat. This is to do with Facebook and Instagram. We all knew that interoperability was what Mark Zuckerberg had been talking about, and he seems to be pushing towards it quite swiftly. Facebook is taking a major step in the plan to merge the systems to let users exchange messages, we understand, between all the different mobile apps. Now they've got a team behind building Instagram's direct messaging product that actually could be folded into the Facebook team. Well, he's better to ask than Scott Galloway on this. I mean, what do you think of this interoperability? The fact that they're merging Facebook with the Messenger product, the Instagram product, eventually the WhatsApp product. It's had some pushback within Facebook itself, but yeah. it's Zuckerberg's vision. Yeah, so what we have here is the mother of all conjoining of triplets. And that is typically you separate great brands to create enterprise value. Mark Zuckerberg is trying to encrypt the backbone between WhatsApp, Instagram, and the core platform Facebook such that he has one communications network across 2.7 billion people or the population of the Southern Hemisphere plus India. What could go wrong? I actually <laughs> think, and I've said this before, I think Mark Zuckerberg is the most dangerous person in the world. And if you look at key moments in our history where we've moved to tyranny, one of the key steps is someone consolidates the media. And the notion that we're going to have one individual deciding the algorithms for an encrypted backbone of 2.7 billion people is frightening, regardless of that person's intentions or not. Them trying to, they're even talking about putting the Facebook brand on each of these. I think what Mark Zuckerberg is doing is taking prophylactic moves against any sort of mm -hmm. antitrust, such yeah. that he could say, it'd be impossible to unwind us now. Mm -hmm. This is absolutely bad for the planet, bad for society. And it's clear where they're going, an encrypted backbone, conjoin the triplets and claim that if you do anything, you're going to kill all of us. So since he's taking this step preemptively, doesn't that make the DOJ or the FTC's job fairly easy in that they can go in there and say directly, OK, then I want you to separate these different businesses that you somehow merge together. Does that become the solution or the preferred solution by the government to uh, address when they look at Facebook for antitrust violations? Well, typically antitrust plays out over the course of years or even decades. And so the, the idea to try and conjoin the companies as quickly as possible such that they can make the argument that they can make a nationalist argument and they're making it now that the Chinese are coming for us with their AI weaponized companies and you need a big company to, in, in fact, uh, we're the only ones that can do a stable currency coin. And they're going to try and make the same argument around encrypting the backbone. When, in fact, the FTC and the DOJ, as they've shown at least stomach, some stomach for, should go on background and hit, say, this is not going to prevent us from splitting mm -hmm. you up, so be careful. But th there has never been a greater failure in FTC or DOJ history than approving the acquisition of Instagram. I think we all uh, probably regret that now. I don't think anyone talks about the Vision Fund nearly enough, or the Vision Funds. Yeah. This is 200 billion dollars in excess of a money being able to be spilled out privately upon smaller technology companies. What is this seismic effect of these funds? Much? Or are they driving up valuations? Yep. How is it disrupting the sector? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. What Honda did to the auto industry in the 70s, um, SoftBank is doing to the entire venture capital community now. It's, it's probably the most disruptive Japanese organization we've seen since Japanese autos came in and literally disrupted the U.S. auto market. And this is what happens on the ground. You're a hot cloud-based SaaS company, and you're raising $50 million at a pre-money valuation of $100 million. SoftBank comes in and says, we'll give you 150 pre-money valuation, but we're investing 100. 
And by the way, if you don't say yes to our term sheet within 48 hours, we're going to the second player in the space and we're giving them $100 million. You're seeing American VC funds that used to be the former masters of the universe mm -hmm. elbowed out of the way by SoftBank. SoftBank is the disruptor in the space. So it's picking winners and losers, essentially. Would this be more palatable if this was an American fund? <laughs> nice well, it's an, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's the Japanese origins, if you will. I think it's the fact that their largest investor is, um, you know, a, what a lot of people would consider is not a great global actor, specifically the In the first vision fund, Saudi Arabia, yeah. that's not the case in the second one. It will be SoftBank itself. Oh, they're not raising any money out of the Gulf for the second well, fund? They, they have, but it's yeah. the biggest chunk of change is coming from SoftBank itself. Yeah, that's interesting. But there's just no doubt about it. They're a disruptor in the space. And we're unfortunately, we're in a weird environment where the key is to establish some sort of market leadership through great execution. And then, quite frankly, to maintain that market leadership through capital. And that mm -hmm. is raising so much money that no one else is able to get near you and then consolidate, acquire Say you're the market leader, go out at an exceptional market valuation, and then use your capital strength to ward off any, any competitors. What do you think about sort of the game plan that they've had of buying the leading ride-hailing businesses across mm -hmm. the world and then able to sort of symbiotically merge them together or indeed have one hotel chain based in India be able to help a European fintech then access India in the future. Is there economies of scale? Will it benefit some of the startups that they go into them in the longer term, even if it is hurting the VCs in the US? I think it's difficult to tell until we have an economic downturn because this feels like a model that works really well till it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And that is what SoftBank is becoming is as much as a VC fund, they're becoming an ETF that kind of shadows the NASDAQ. How is SoftBank doing? Just tell me where the NASDAQ is today and I'll tell you where it is because they're showing up to the market leaders. What will be interesting is what happens with SoftBank and a lot of this comes down to what kind of conditions they have in terms of gates or how, how long uh, their capital, how long they raise for, five, seven, ten year gates. The real test of SoftBank is when we go into a recession yeah. and these companies are no longer the darlings. Then we spoke with Joachim Fels, Managing Director and Global Economic Advisor at PIMCO, about how low U.S. rates can go. U.S. 30-year yields are closing in on their lowest level ever on the back of growing trade tensions and global growth concerns. And Joachim wrote in his most recent blog post that, quote, it is no longer absurd to think that the nominal yield of U.S. Treasury securities could go negative. We started by asking what it could take to get there. What would, it what would it take for negative yields to happen in the U.S.? Well, it's probably not around the corner, but I think what it would take is a serious downturn in the economy, a recession, uh, in which the Fed will take the rates all the way down to zero, will restart QE. And I think at that stage, we may well see negative yields in the U.S., as we are seeing them in many other parts of the world. So in a blog post, Jakob, you wrote that essentially central banks aren't necessarily the victims of this uh, per se, or aren't really the cause of this rather, but rather the victims of, I guess, some broader secular trends that are forcing rates down. Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously, central banks influence the short end of the curve and also the longer end through Q QE. But in the end, they have to respond to fundamental forces and what's going on in the world, what has been going on for a long time, and that was part of our new neutral thesis, which we came up with five years ago, is that there is a global saving glut, right? I mean, for various people, uh, for various reasons, companies uh, uh, and, and many households need to save more, want to save more for the future. At the same time, there's very little demand for this excess capital, for these excess savings, and this is driving down the equilibrium interest rate. 
And then if central banks stem against that, if they keep their rates higher than the equilibrium rate, then what you get is recession and deflation. So that's in the end why, you know, I think central banks are not the villains in this game. They are the victims. What is the end game, Joachim? How long can we sustain negative rates? Is it ad infinitum? Well, it's probably not ad infinitum, um, but I think in the end, this will spark some other reactions from other policy areas. I mean, negative yields are not great. I mean, definitely not for investors and also not for psychology. So I think where we will end up eventually, but that's probably still several years down the road, is that fiscal policy becomes much more active. Um, because that's one way to counter the global saving glut, right? If the private sector wants to save more, then somebody else has to save less or has to go deeper into debt. And that other uh, uh, entity is likely to be government. So I think the end game is that once monetary policy is exhausted, once yields are in negative territory almost everywhere in the advanced world, that's the time when we see a much more, much bigger fiscal response. And that could then actually get us out, out of this negative yield environment. I want to go back to something you said that I think is interesting when you talked about central banks as the sort of victim here. Because people look at these low nominal rates or negative rates and they say, oh, these are artificial and QE distorting the curve and all this stuff. But it sounds like the way you're saying it is that really it's the supply and demand of savings and demand for capital that's quite extreme, extraordinary demand for savings, but uh, or extraordinary amount of savings, very little demand for capital. And central banks setting yields essentially just to, uh, you know, match supply and demand. Yeah, that's that's correct. I mean, they are the market makers, right? They're not the price. They're the market makers. They're not setting the prices. They're not the price setter. Um, And again, they have to respond to these fundamental drivers. Also, you might want to ask why, you know, should anybody receive a positive yield on a totally risk free safe asset? Right. So um, and that's what government bonds are. Um, So so if you look at it from that perspective, uh, I think people have to get used to the idea that they have to pay a premium in the form of a slightly negative yield for a totally safe asset for somebody to keep their savings safe and give them back the money in five or 10 or 20 years time when they need it to consume in retirement. Okay, so Jakob, for those of us who still think that the government should be paying us a return of some sort, when you look at this trend towards negative yields, is this then become a situation where we're talking about uh, it becomes less of a demand issue and more that there really isn't enough supply there? And then when you talk about the fiscal response to this, does this mean we are sort of headed down this path where we're just going to start pumping out more bonds around the world? Yeah, I think that is what we we will eventually get. I mean, there is high demand for safe assets in the world. By the way, that demand for safe assets not only comes from advanced economies, from rich economies, it also comes from emerging economies. In many of those countries where incomes are rising fast, where wealth is rising fast, there is no good domestic safe assets. So there is high demand for safe assets in the form of treasury bonds, in the form of Mm. boons, JGBs. So I think what you'll see eventually is governments will respond. You will see more active fiscal policy, but you probably need another recession to really spark that reaction. Exactly what Alicia Levine was talking about previously about finally Germany perhaps adding some fiscal stimulus. Joachim, we've got a user question coming here from a terminal user saying, how high in particular considering the Federal Reserve, how high can the federal debt of the United States 
get before the bond market has an issue. So how much can fiscal stimulus be here in the United States before we get the bond vigilantes starting to push away from U.S. Treasuries? Well, I'd say there is still a lot of room for U.S. debt to go higher, for U.S. government debt to go higher, because there is this demand for safe assets. And look, we've learned in the case of Japan that government debt can go to 250 percent of GDP. We're at 100 percent in the U.S., but it can go to 250 percent of GDP. Nothing bad happens. Right. So I think there is still room for an increase in debt as long as there is this strong demand for safe assets. And as long as central banks are around to, if needed, bail governments out. Big picture, does everyone have to become experts now on German politics since it's everyone keeps coming back to that as the one variable that could really sort of change this story? Well, I think, you know, there's been a lot of pressure on the German government to do more fiscally. So far, they're not showing signs that they will be moving. I think we may get there if we are now headed into a recession in Germany. But look, there's this very strong resistance in Germany against more fiscal policy. You know, this has cultural reasons, language reasons. Um, the German word for, for debt is Schuld. Uh, Schuld not only means debt, uh, the other implication is guilt or shame. So going into debt is something really bad in Germany. So you need, you know, big events like, say, a deep recession to get them to do more fiscal. Um, they did that in the last recession, so I'm pretty confident that if we get a full-blown recession in Germany, we will see fiscal expansion. The trouble is, by then, it'll probably be too late. Influencers that are taking over Instagram and YouTube are now the viral stars looking for wealth managers who can help them out with seven-figure incomes. So we caught up with Michael Bienstock, co-founder and CEO of Semaphore, firm that handles tax and business solutions specifically for YouTubers. We started first by asking him how he got into this line of work. Well, they, there's a joke, all good stories start with your roommate in law school. And <laughs> mine had this idea to start this new media company tied to YouTube and influencers back literally when monetization started. So we got in ground floor. We actually signed the paperwork to incorporate Maker Studios. Fascinating that you got in so early. Why is there a different kind of, kind of money management needed for such money makers in the influence space? I, I think it's a very unique uh, class of entrepreneurs, effectively. They have not trained for business. They're not business people by nature. They're creative people that effectively started making very large amounts of money thanks to Google and its YouTube platform. And that's really driven an entire industry. It's driven in an entire industry, certainly, but when it comes to what you do for them, how does financial planning work when their income may not be as predictable as someone who works at a multinational firm that has offices all around the world? I mean, one month they may take in a lot of money, the next month it might be a drought. Sure, so liquidity is a big deal for these creators, and also they have a very distinct memory of being, quote, broke from before they started really making money. And that's something that requires much higher reserves than normal, uh, you know, somebody who could just go get a job in a few months or nowadays in a few weeks based on the labor market. These guys kind of rise and fall based on algorithms, if you will. So how much of, uh, how much of a reserve do you have them set aside? Give us a, a sense. Usually um, you take the common rule of thumb, they want six to 12 months of reserves and double or triple that Ooh. for these guys. 
We're just looking at pictures there of Instagram. Of course, Influencer isn't just YouTube anymore, even though you were there for the birth of that. But Instagram's become the new area. Even though Instagram and Facebook, as its parent company, is trying to perhaps make it slightly harder to become an influencer, where do you see the evolution of more and more money makers coming into your space? Is it going to get harder? And, and what other platforms are they going to be using? So it's, it's going to get harder for what I call the accidental creator, somebody who just put the camera on themselves and then became high profile. But I think it's actually becoming easier for those who are viewing it really as a career or a, a job path because it really is going to boil down to building a team at this point. There, I call it bandwidth. The solo creator just doesn't have the ability to experiment with these multiple platforms. And when the algorithms go against them, they don't have the ability to experiment with something new while continuing to do their day-to-day -day video production. Mm -hmm. So I think everything's pointing to bigger teams, more professional environments. And I really think this is what ultimately Google wants. They want to take this industry and really scale it up. Very quickly, Michael, what's the next platform you'll be watching for? If not Instagram, if not YouTube, which one could be the future platform to watch for? You know, I really think Facebook itself is going to figure out its live stream or its video platform at some point, and clearly Amazon is definitely a force to be reckoned with even right now. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.